It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In late March, as coronavirus infection figures spiralled, the Prime Minister addressed the nation. You must stay at home. In the face of a growing threat to the country's health system, the government were looking to ease pressure on the NHS. The great fear was that... There will come a moment when no health service in the world could possibly cope because there won't be enough ventilators, enough intensive care beds, enough doctors and nurses. But how did the system stop intensive care from being overwhelmed? An investigation by the Sunday Times Insight team has some startling answers. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the shocking parameters for COVID care. Raymond Austin was a uh, 82-year-old. He was fit and healthy. He was still working. He was a computer analyst. Jonathan Calvert is the insight editor for the Sunday Times. And on the day that lockdown started, he started to feel a bit ill. By the weekend, March the 30th, he was starting to feel very, very feverish and very down. So his daughter, Vivian Morrison, went over to see him. And she called the GP and the GP looked at him and said that he was quite serious and he should call an ambulance. Now, this was the time that COVID was starting to hit across the country, but particularly in the southeast. And when the ambulance came, the ambulance was quite reluctant to take him in initially because what he could see was that Raymond had a fever and he had possibly sepsis. But at the time, he didn't necessarily know whether he had coronavirus. But in the end, he thought that the sepsis was so severe that Raymond needed to be taken into hospital. So he was taken into East Surrey Hospital in Redhill. And uh, sure enough, when he got in there, they did a test and his symptoms were all being caused by COVID-19. But he was put on the ward and admitted uh, at 82. And he was there for a, another week. It was a difficult time in the hospitals at the time because there was such a fear of everyone getting an infection. People weren't allowed to visit, so people were left on their own in hospital and families would keep in contact by telephone. On the 4th of April, his daughter received a telephone call from the hospital to say that Raymond was being moved wards because the ward that he'd been in was being turned into an intensive care unit. This was part of the move to try and get more intensive care beds in hospitals at the time, because that was the key thing. And that's what the government and the NHS feared they would be short of intensive care beds. And he wasn't kept on the ward because the person who spoke to Vivian from the hospital said he wasn't serious enough. Wasn't serious enough to be in intensive care or? In intensive care, which that ward was now being turned into. And yet the following day, April the 5th, 
which was actually the day that the Prime Minister went into hospital with COVID. It was a Sunday. In the last hour, Downing Street has said that the Prime Minister has been admitted to hospital in what's being described as a precautionary step. He tested positive for coronavirus 10 days ago. Vivian had a telephone call from the uh, hospital. Her doctor told her that his oxygen levels had lowered to 70% and he wouldn't survive the day. Oh, wow. As you can imagine, shocking news. And there was just no warning of it. Nobody had understood that his condition was so bad. The general guidance is that anybody whose oxygen level is under 94% needs seriously reviewing and possibly oxygen treatment. And Raymond's oxygen had got down to 70%, which is why the doctors didn't think he would survive the day. Vivian and her sister requested that they go and see him, and the hospital did kindly allow them to go in, but they had to do it at their own risk. And they had to wear PPE, and they had to scrub down on all those things in order to go. At the time, nobody knew what was happening in the hospitals because they were off limits, and the NHS themselves had been very secretive about what was going on because they didn't really want to panic people. And when they got in, they found that there was a porter guarding the door to the ward, and there was a big red sign on it saying, do not enter. They were allowed to enter, and they say it was what they saw was just horrendous. Vivian describes it as a death ward. Her father was in the far corner, but there were about eight elderly people, all on their beds, and she describes them almost in nappies, drugged and barely conscious. She said it was stiflingly hot in there, and she could barely catch their eyes because it was just so sad. And she saw her father, who was in a bad state. He seemed to be hungry and he seemed to be very thirsty. And they say they were there for a long time. And in that time, no nurses came in and out. It was almost as if this ward had been just left. And certainly Vivian felt that people had been left to die in that ward. And in fact, while they were there, one of the people died next to them in the bed. And nobody was there. They had to go and find a nurse and tell them that somebody had died. And when they were outside the ward, they bumped into an auxiliary nurse who was in tears. And she said, they're all going to die and nobody's doing anything about it. That's horrendous. I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear when your father's in a ward. Absolutely. I think they felt that the eight people in that ward had just been left to pass away because there was nothing they could do for them. The family, on the other hand, just cannot understand why Raymond and the others were not given intensive care to at least have had a chance to save their lives because it didn't seem as if anything was being done. And this was especially galling for them as the day before they'd been told that their father was not sufficiently ill to stay in a ward which had been turned into an intensive care unit. So what had gone wrong here? Why wasn't Raymond placed in intensive care sooner? We simply don't know. What we suspect is that hospitals were having to triage quite heavily. By triage, I mean they had to choose between which patients were allowed to go into intensive care and which would not be allowed to go into intensive care. It was like choosing between lives, in a sense. Those patients who did not go into intensive care frequently were the ones who scored high in terms of age, their frailty, and possibly they also had some sort of illness as well that would have scored against them. And the family say that they were told by the doctor that it was a tick-boxing exercise. 
And it seems that Bremen just didn't make the cut in terms of the score when he was triaged. Tell me how you've followed this trail. How have you come across this story? If there is something going wrong with the triage system, it does change our understanding of what was happening in the early days of COVID-19. We were asked to look at this period of lockdown. And obviously, the major thing that was happening uh, was the hospitals were becoming hugely under pressure. That's George Arbuthnot. He's the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. Britain had delayed its lockdown to the extent that we had more infections than any other country in Europe when they brought in the same measure. And Britain had significantly less intensive care beds than countries like Italy, who had been overwhelmed. They're fighting a war here and they're losing. The sheer numbers of people succumbing to the coronavirus is overwhelming every hospital in northern Italy. People had been left at homes with people delivering them with oxygen canisters and they were being left to die in their homes. It seems hard to understand how the government and the NHS bosses were able to claim that our intensive care wards and hospitals had never been overwhelmed and also that the Nightingale hospitals had laid pretty much completely empty. And there just seemed to be a logic gap. And so we decided to look into it more closely. And what did you find? Why was that happening? So what we basically found is that they were scoring people by their age, frailty and underlying illnesses. They would effectively ratchet that up and down depending on the level of capacity available. So if there was a risk that the intensive care ward would become overwhelmed, then they just exclude more elderly and frail people from going in. And how was that triage system being run? Was it the same across the NHS? Were hospitals coming up with their own individual system? Well, we've spoken to intensive care doctors on the ground who say that many hospitals were using these same parameters and what was devised was something called COVID-19 decision support tool, which actually quantified these different parameters. The parameters were developed by the MIAG, or the Moral and Ethical Advisory Group, made up of academics, medics and faith leaders. Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer who advises Boris Johnson and the government, commissioned a study to see how they might be able to give guidance to the hospitals on who they chose to go into intensive care. And we can see that what happens is that initially a document is produced and that goes to a body called the Moral and Ethical Advisory Group. This is a group of people who are basically religious leaders or humanist leaders and some scientists and some academics. And what they were seeking was some idea as to whether it was moral and ethical to heavily select who went into intensive care and who didn't. And there was a discussion of this document around about the end of March. Some of the people on the committee did point out at the time that it was discrimination to give such a high score to age. One of the committee of the record described the document as Nazi-like. Wow. Its ability to, to pick and choose who gets treated and who doesn't. Absolutely, yeah. The first document was so stark because... You would not be admitted to intensive care if you had a score of over eight. And 
you were scored nine for being over 80. And even if you're 75, you would get seven. And on the frailty scale, if you were coping well and very healthy, you would still get a two. So therefore, people who were coping well and over 75 would also be immediately excluded. And it just went down because from 60 upwards, you could be excluded because of an illness, because of your age, because of your level of frailty, etc., And this document, according to people we've talked to, was never officially accepted. But what seems to have happened with the document is that it was in circulation in the NHS. A second document was made, which was very similar, which was called the COVID-19 Decision Support Tool. Exactly the same, apart from it slightly lowered some of the scores. It was still very easy to exclude over 80-year-olds, over 70-year-olds by totaling up the scores. and. Both these documents seem to have been circulated in the NHS. We've also talked to doctors who um, told us that they used this particular tool, either the first or the second document, as a guide to help them decide who should be given intensive care. In fact, George was talking to one of our sources who named a number of places around the country where this COVID-19 decision tool was used at the height of the pandemic in order to decide which people should be given care. And what that usually meant was that elderly people were excluded from intensive care. And you've spoken to doctors who were using it. What did they make of the document? They found it pretty disturbing, but it was all they had at that time to make those decisions and avoid their intensive care wards being overwhelmed. And that was the the quandary. And so in the end, many hospitals ended up using it. And we've been told that it was used in the Midlands, in the Southeast, in London, in Liverpool, in Manchester. It really was a difficult situation for them. A lot of them felt really terrible that people that they would normally be putting into intensive care and giving a shot, as they put it, were just not being given that shot and being just left on the wards with, at best, non-invasive ventilation and oxygen. And a lot of the um, staff found that very difficult. I mean, that is the shocking part in all of this, because we know that triage does happen normally and people may not get the full spectrum of treatment if they're quite frail. But these people in normal circumstances would have qualified for intensive care. You're right, in normal times... People who are very frail would sometimes not be offered invasive ventilation because of their low survival chances or the health complications that the procedure can cause. But what the doctors in the intensive care ward say was that this was very different. One of the doctors the team spoke to worked in intensive care in the Midlands and what they told the Insight team was shocking. During the height of the pandemic, not a single person over the age of 75 got into intensive care. The result of that was that 90% of the deaths in his hospital happened on the wards and only 10% happened in intensive care. Do we know who would make the decision? I mean, was it doctors using this advisory system who got to decide or or does it happen further down in, in terms of triage? So it was the guidance, but it was given to consultants on the wards on the COVID wards and according to the intensive care doctor in the Midlands dozens of intensive care beds were left empty because under the criteria of the tool 
not enough patients were qualifying for intensive care to fill them. And yet patients were dying. In their dozens, yeah. How did this impact the total death toll? So we're able to get data from the government's best monitor of what happened in hospitals during that first wave. And those figures show that of all the people who died of the virus in hospital during the first wave, more than half were over the age of 80. But only 2.5% of patients who were admitted to intensive care were of that age group. What we can also see is the proportions of the elderly getting into intensive care changed over that first wave. So in the middle weeks of March, before the first wave had peaked, 13% of over 60s admitted to hospital with the virus were given an intensive care bed. By the start of May, once the peak had arrived, that figure more than halved and was down to 6%. But then once the pressure eased again by August, that had increased back up to 11%, which gives you a sense of how the triaging uh, was dictated by the capacity of the hospital. Those figures in terms of people who were suffering clearly weren't changing. It's just that people weren't being given a chance. The government claimed that the threshold was never breached, that intensive care capacity was always available. But actually, if you look of all the people who died of COVID during that period, 45,000, something like just one in nine received intensive care. And so most people who died of COVID-19 weren't given the highest level of care at all. So it was never breached because a lot of the people who most needed help just weren't being given it. It's worth noting that the intensive care doctor in the Midlands obviously described what difficult conversations they were having to have with these elderly people who weren't being allowed into intensive care. And they actually admitted that they would often have to tell a white lie where they would tell patients that it was in their best interests to be cared for on the wards. But, and I, I quote, he said, but the reality of the situation was actually it was because we were facing multiple admissions of younger, fitter patients at that point, and we just couldn't accommodate the elderly at the rate that they were coming in. You're listening to Stories of Our Times. We'll have more on this story coming up in just a moment. But if you want to access more remarkable investigations and scoops, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In May, two of the country's leading experts in critical care wrote a letter to the Emergency Medical Journal raising their concerns over the care coronavirus patients were being offered in hospital. Their analysis found that less than 10% of all those who died of the virus had been given access to intensive care treatment. They also looked at the numbers of intensive care beds that were being left empty and saying, not only are we concerned about the fact that the elderly and people with underlying illnesses are being turned away, but we're also concerned about the fact that this seems to be happening more than was necessary and leaving free capacity. They express particular concern about something they called a COVID-19 decision support tool which is exactly the tool that MEHAG... That's the government's moral and ethical advisory group... ...had been discussing. And it noted that it used a number of factors, which meant that men, the old, the frail, and those suffering from underlying illness were less likely to be admitted to intensive care. The description matches exactly the tool that Chris Whitty had commissioned and that the moral and ethical advisory group had discussed. Have you spoken to the doctors who'd come up with the report? Yes, we have, and they're very distressed to hear that we've got evidence that that tool was being used in hospitals. They were really disturbed by it. And you've spoken to a number of healthcare professionals now across the spectrum of the NHS. What reactions have you had from them? We've spoken to intensive care doctors in the South East, in London and in the Midlands, who were obviously completely aware of the tool and knew it had been used. But then others who were in hospitals in the north where during the first wave there was less capacity pressure and they are shocked by it and say that they never had to resort to triaging and were really surprised to hear that that had gone on elsewhere. Yeah, they would say that they treated everyone regardless of age. I spoke to an intensive care doctor in Cambridge and Cambridge being a university town very easily increased its intensive care unit capacity because the key thing with increasing intensive care capacity was that you needed the staff to staff it. It's one thing saying, well, we'll just have extra beds, but actually you just need a lot of professional people. And because they're in Cambridge and they've got lots of academic doctors who could suddenly roll their sleeves up and help out, they were able to really increase their intensive care capacity. And so they say that they didn't have the same problems that they had in the rest of the country. It was clearly very patchy. Some hospitals were being overrun and some weren't. And it was a nightmarish situation in some hospitals. 
We've talked about what was happening in intensive care and why so few patients who really needed help were making it in. But you've mentioned that a lot of people were dying of COVID-19 at home. What was going on there? I mean, you've spoken to ambulance drivers and paramedics. Why were so few people getting to hospital in the first place? Well, right at the very beginning of the crisis, the London Ambulance Service decided to make a change to the way that they admitted people. They had something called a News 2 score in which when they went to see somebody, they assessed them to work out how ill they are and whether they needed to be taken into hospital. Normally, uh, someone who scored five would be taken into hospital, but they increased it to six. And we've spoken to doctors about this, and they say that if those people had actually been in hospital, some of the score of six or seven would actually be in intensive care, let alone just taking them into hospital. What it meant was that they were being highly selective about who they took in. That in turn meant that a lot of people were left at home. And one of the problems with COVID-19, which I think a lot of people probably know about, is that the effects of lowered oxygen levels as your oxygen goes below the key 94% are not always felt by the patients. So people could be at home feeling very ill, but they wouldn't necessarily know that their breathing was becoming harder and harder. And so it would get to the stage where people would become so ill that they would have heart attacks at home without any medical care. And now if they'd been in hospital and could have been monitored, then this could have been avoided. George spoke to an ambulance paramedic in London who said that they were going to people's houses and finding an unusual amount of people who died of heart attacks. I mean, it was quite horrendous. And the ambulances weren't getting to people as quickly as they had before because they were hard-pressed, lots of people needing the ambulance, especially in London, which bore the brunt of the first wave. And so response times would go up from, I think, an average of 20 minutes to about an hour, which was one of the great tragedies of the COVID-19 epidemic, was that so many people died at home outside the NHS. And George, what role were GPs playing too in all of this? We got hold of an extraordinary document that was uh, sent out by the Buckinghamshire NHS Trust, which was asking GPs to urgently identify all patients who were frail or in the later stages of life and then score them based on their frailty. And the purpose of that was to draw up a list of those who might be persuaded to stay at home when they became seriously ill rather than take them to hospital. The document was explicit about its reasoning for that. It said it was doing this because intensive care was, I quote, expected to far outweigh capacity by several thousand beds over the next few weeks in the southeast region due to COVID-19 and that there was a limited staff base to look after sick patients in our hospitals. So it was explicitly saying that they didn't have enough room for everyone in hospitals and so they needed to identify those who would be left at home without care. When we saw that document, we were quite astonished about how brazen it was. And even more shockingly, it said that approach it was setting out was being adopted by clinical commissioning groups across England. So it wasn't just Buckinghamshire. The document says it's going to ask doctors to scour the lists it's providing from registers of people from care homes, as well as everyone over the age of 80, and give them a score. And anyone who scored over seven on, on the frailty scale, which was anyone dependent on a carer but not at risk of dying, then 
they would recommend that it be better that they remained at home rather than be taken to hospital. The document did say that patients' circumstances and families' wishes would be taken into account, but it stressed that ultimately it was a decision for the clinician involved. The desperate need to keep pressure off hospitals was also leading to a crisis in care homes. Many elderly patients had been discharged and sent to care homes in order to make space on the wards, but without first being tested for the virus. Soon, a third of all care homes were suffering from a coronavirus outbreak. In just three months, 26,500 more people died in care homes than normal. How has this investigation, how has following this trail made you feel? Because I think for most people listening, this is quite shocking. We've been talking to a lot of the families we've been working with, a brilliant reporter called Shanti Das, who's been talking to a lot of the families. And just hearing their stories has moved her and us. Hearing people who've lost their fathers, mothers, uh, loved ones, even though it seems much more could have been done for them. It's been so hard. I mean, I've rung my own grandmother to just check what her arrangements are with her GP. Has she had a call from her GP asking her not to go into hospital? She is 84. And I, I was worried that she may be in the same position. And I've been talking to her about what she needs to think about and communicating with us if she's in hospital with COVID to make sure that she doesn't end up on the wrong side of a triaging decision. And there's a broader point, which is that we were told that the NHS absolutely coped. And in fact, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, sent an email to Conservative supporters in July saying that everybody got the care they needed during the pandemic. This just does not seem to have been the case on so, so many levels. People did not get intensive care. People were not admitted to hospital. And our colleague Shanti Das has talked to several families who are really quite cross that their loved ones were just not given the best standard of care, not given a chance really, not even given a shot at being saved. I mean, does this change the way we look at how we as a country have handled the pandemic? I think yes, because I think what we learn from this is that there seems to be a public view that we did cope during the pandemic. We didn't even have to use the Nightingale hospitals, which is another story in itself. And therefore, as we go into this new wave of cases, then we'll cope again. And maybe that is one of the reasons informing policy, because big decisions have been taken at the moment, weighing up the effects on the economy against people's health. And I think if people knew more about just what a struggle it was for the NHS during that period and how far more people weren't given the care than we've previously been led to believe, then I think that would actually affect decision-making now more seriously, certainly in terms of public opinion and possibly at the top of government. More than 2,000 families have formed the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice Group, but they feel their concerns aren't being listened to. They wrote to the Prime Minister and Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, asking for a meeting to raise pertinent questions with them. And they've refused to even meet them. They've hired a human rights lawyer now because Amnesty International believe that, in particular many of the people in care homes, their right to life was breached. The government has breached their human rights. But Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock just replied to them through the government's lawyers. It's a really difficult situation. 
it's clear what the families think, but who do you sort of blame for this, for the number of people who didn't receive the care they should have done? Is this a government failure? Is it something within the NHS? I think the overarching issue is clearly allowing too many infections to spread across the country than the NHS could handle. If we'd locked down nine days earlier, which would have been even after Italy had locked down, then we would have only, according to the um, Oxford University and Imperial College estimates, we would have been dealing with 200,000 infections rather than 1.5 million. And as the intensive care doctor in the Midlands said, that would have allowed us to have had the capacity to give everybody with the virus the best possible care they needed. I think the NHS could be criticised for some of the measures that they took, but they were put in an incredibly difficult position in the first place, which was unnecessary and could have been avoided. I think also the NHS could be also criticised for not being open about what happened in those days. And the claim that everybody got the care that they needed was clearly not the case. And what response have you had from the government and from the NHS to your investigation? We contacted the Department of Health about what we'd found and they said that the triage tool had never been formally distributed or published. They added uh, in a statement, which I quote, From the outset, we have done everything possible to protect the public and save lives. Patients will always receive the best possible care from the NHS, and the claim that intensive care beds were rationed or that patients were prevented from receiving necessary care is false. Doctors make decisions on who will benefit from care every day as part of normal clinical decision-making. Since the beginning of this pandemic, we have prioritised testing for health and care workers and continuously supplied PPE to the front line, delivering over 4.2 billion items to date. We've been doing everything we can to protect care home residents, including regular testing and ring fencing, over £1.1 billion to prevent infections within and between care settings. Raymond Austin, the 82-year-old man who'd gone into hospital at the start of lockdown, died on April the 5th the day the Prime Minister was himself admitted to hospital for the virus. His family were left devastated. They were furious and they sent a long letter to the hospital and they got a nice letter back from the head nurse, a woman called Jane Dixon, who wrote on behalf of the chief executive. And she said, I want you to know how sorry I am that we let your father down. We've been reflecting on our initial response to the COVID-19 pandemic and I regret to say there are aspects of our care that we got wrong. Routine tasks of supporting our patients to eat and drink suffered. Because their staffing was overwhelmed and they had a shortage of staff with necessary skills. According to the chief nurse, the diagnosis for Raymond was that he didn't need extra oxygen care, which is hard to understand because clearly he did. When we went to the hospital and asked them why it was that they hadn't given Raymond more care, they just simply said that it was a clinical decision not to. They say that there were sufficient intensive care beds for him to be cared with, and yet he wasn't put into one of them. And we find this very hard to understand because his condition was so serious he was about to die. He therefore needed more care. He was a fit and able man before he got COVID-19. He did have high blood pressure and diabetes, but both of those are very common illnesses. Finally, for the relatives of those who didn't get the care that they should have done, what do they need to see? What would help them feel like 
this hadn't all been in vain. Their focus is on ensuring that others do not suffer what they've suffered. And they're really worried about this second wave that the government are allowing to continue to grow. And their aim is to get a statutory inquiry to force the government and the NHS to learn the lessons of the first wave. They're not seeking monetary compensation. They're very clear on that. It's not an effort to profit from it. It's purely to ensure that people do not die unnecessarily again. In a statement last week, the Buckinghamshire Trust said every patient who needed hospital treatment was admitted. On Friday, Professor Stephen Powis, the NHS National Medical Director, issued a statement saying that all patients had been treated equally. He said the NHS repeatedly instructed staff that no patient who could benefit from treatment should be denied it. And thanks to people following government guidance, even at the height of the pandemic, there was no shortage of ventilators and intensive care. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, the editor and deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insight team, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot. You can read more of the Insight team's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Edward Drummond, and the executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Wei Dong Lin. If you can, please do leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and we're also available on the Times radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. Thanks for listening. This was a special Sunday edition of the podcast, but we'll be back as normal tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.